So we've been in a series now called the Disruptor Series. And last week, I think you heard from JR about being an advocate. And I don't know, maybe you think that the term disruptor is very provocative. You like the sound of it. In fact, when you hear the term disruptor, you really want to lean in. You're like, yeah, that's me. And for some of you, it makes you a little uncomfortable. You're like, I don't know if I want to be a disruptor. I mean, aren't disruptors the ones who get kicked out of church? <laughs> Not sure if that's really my, my thing. But over these next couple of weeks, I just want to challenge you to lean into the idea of what a disruptor really could be. And the fact that we're all called to be disruptors. And maybe that Jesus was the ultimate disruptor of history. He was an unlikely guy that came in an unlikely time and truly turned the world upside down. He loved the unlovable. He touched the untouchable. He named the nameless. He added life and value to those who would otherwise maybe be ignored or written off. He was a disruptor. And if Jesus was a disruptor and we're followers of Jesus, I think we have to take some time to consider how does that impact our life? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the way that I'm going to live? So maybe you're an advocate. Maybe you're a builder. Maybe you're an influencer. Or maybe you're a catalyst. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Being a catalyst and disrupting culture for the purpose of the gospel. But I think sometimes, too, it can be really hard to live this out. Today, in this political climate with the challenges that are going on and with the terrorism that is literally right outside of our doors, it can be hard to keep hope. We can see injustice in every corner of the world that we look at, and we wonder, is good ever going to win? Does my contribution really matter? But isn't that what the enemy does? He confuses and he isolates. He wants us to believe the lies are bigger than the truth, and he wants us to live in a counterfeit economy. He wants us to live with a currency of doubt and fear and bitterness and resentment and anxiety. Maybe the enemy can't take us out all the way, but he can surely misdirect us, send our passions in the wrong direction. He can influence our choices and help us to think that maybe evil wins, good loses. God doesn't matter. But I'm here to remind you today, and we need to remind each other, that evil cannot win. And hope, hope never disappoints. But let me pray for us before we continue. Father, I am thankful that your word is true and that it is living and is an active thing. That as we learn it, as we seep in it, as it gets into our bones... We're able to redirect our lives, surrendering it to you, and be true catalysts for your kingdom. I pray, Father, that my words would just be a conduit of your grace and your truth and your love, and that we would be able to see you as supremely valuable in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
So like Jesus, we're called to be catalysts. And catalysts, they're not okay with the status quo. They're comfortable moving into the uncomfortable places, the space of the unknown. They want to affect change. They want to give voice to the voiceless, and they want to fight for justice. They're willing to go against the flow. And the Bible has a lot to say about disruptors and disrupting the status quo. And I have a couple of verses for you here, just in case you don't want to take my word for it. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, and fight for the rights of widows. Give justice to the poor and the orphan, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. And I think we can get really excited and amped up about passages like this. We hear things like, speak up, defend, uphold the rights of the oppressed. It seems very obvious, it seems very loud, very public, very passionate. But we're going to talk about someone today who was a catalyst for justice, but in a more unlikely way. And that's the story of Esther. And I don't know if you've ever read the story of Esther. It's a whole book in the Bible. It's a very interesting story. It's got all the peaks and valleys that you would expect from good literature. So read it, just for fun. But I'm going to tell you just a small part of the story, kind of condensed down. So at the time of Esther's story, the kingdom of Persia had 127 provinces. So that's, that's a lot. It, it was a very vast land. And there was one king that united it, and that was King Xerxes. And he was in the capital of Susa. And also during that time, the Jewish people, they were in exile. They had been in exile for a long time. They were exiled under the Babylonians and now under Persia. And they were oppressed people. They weren't living in exile luxury. They were living in exile oppression. And there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of racial tension going on. There were several people inside of the provinces that had it out for the Jews. They didn't like them. So there was racial oppression. There was cultural tension, uh, oppression and tensions. But then there was this king. This king was very opulent, and his name was King Xerxes. And he loved to have these big festivals that lasted for months. So one time he's having a big festival, and he's having dinner, and he's drinking with his buddies. And he decides that he wants his queen to come and dance for he and his buddies. And his queen, she declined, because she's wise. <laughs> and the king didn't like that. It enraged him, in fact. And his buddies were like, whoa, she can't do that to the king. You need to do something about that. So he dethroned her. And then his super wise counseling buddies were like, you know what you should do? You should choose another queen. You deserve the best, the cream of the crop. So why don't we do kind of an all call of all the women in the provinces, and you can take your pick. So there's this massive beauty pageant. Now, there's also this character, Esther. And Esther lived during this time in exile, and she was a Jew. But she was an orphan, and we don't know how she was orphaned. Maybe it is that her parents died somewhere in the wars, but she was being raised by her great-great-uncle, Mordecai. And Mordecai thought it a good idea for Esther to apply for the job of queen. So she went in and did this, and she went through a year-long preparation process of spa treatments and like scented lotions and all sorts of things all year prior before even being presented to the king. Whole bunch of women being presented to the king. And he chose Esther out of all of them. But she concealed her cultural identity. 
Nobody knew that she was a Jew. Then there's this other character, Haman. Now, he's our villain of the story. He is no good. He's completely narcissistic and completely opportunistic. He's only out for himself. Everything that he does is grasping for power. And he particularly doesn't like the Jews. And he really doesn't like Mordecai. Because Mordecai was a silent protester. He would never bow down to Haman. And so Haman was enraged by that. It infuriated him that he could not control the people. And so he was going to annihilate them. So he got all his buddies together, and he basically made a legal, a legal edict that said, we're going to kill all the Jews. At some point in time, we're going to get rid of all these people. So an entire empire is shifting focus on getting rid of an entire people group. And that's the basis of this story. So we're going to drop in here, and we're going to read pieces from Esther. And I'm just going to kind of flow along so you kind of get a grasp of the story. But Mordecai catches the idea, the wind. He hears rumor that Haman's out to kill the Jewish people. And so he goes to Esther and says, you got to do something about this. you got to somehow tell the king. And this is their response. So we'll pick up in Esther chapter 4. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all the Jews. And he asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told this guy to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die. Unless the king holds out his gold scepter and the king, he's not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. A little back and forth. Email would have been effective. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that just because you're in the palace that you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews, it will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you are made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. And if I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on royal robes and she entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. And the king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her. And he held out the gold scepter for her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. And Esther replied, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for the king. The king turned to the attendant and said, tell him to come quickly to a banquet as Esther's requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, Now tell me, what is it that you really want? What's your request? I'll give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. And Esther replied, This is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you. Then I will explain what this is all about. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet for the second time. And while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What's your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. And Queen Esther replied, If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. 
For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If I had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? And Esther replied, that wicked Haman right there is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, he stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. And in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, will you even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman, he set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard, and he intended to use it to impale Mordecai, and the man who saved the king from assassination, which happened earlier in the story. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. We call that sowing and reaping. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the property to Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. And the king took off his, his ring, which he had given, taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. So there was a transfer of power. Then Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe of blue and white and a great crown of gold and an outer cloak of fine linen and purple, and the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. And the Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored everywhere in every province and city. Wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. So in this bit of the story, we move from a people group that's completely oppressed and in fear for their life to a people group that is now being honored. And the second in command now to the king is this Mordecai because of Esther. But Esther, she had no platform, no influence, no education or reputation, no particular prestige. She was just an unlikely candidate for the job. Yet she was chosen to be queen. God positioned her in the court of the king long before her influence would be needed. But God knew. Esther didn't feel like she was particularly special or capable. She was just a young woman taking an opportunity, really, to survive. But God knew that in time, Esther would be exactly what the situation called for. He would, she would be the catalyst for transformation because God uses the ordinary to do extraordinary things. And also, God's not surprised by humanity. The political climate and the situation that's going on, the governmental structure, it doesn't hold him back and it does not tie his hands. Justice happens in God's timing. But at the same time, in this situation, his justice, it didn't happen all at one time. Esther was in the king's court for something over eight years before this happened. And all the while, she hid her cultural identity. She was anonymous. And then even after the plot of Haman to kill the Jews and the edict went out, it was like a year and a half before the time that it became public and execution day. That's a long time to know that you're going to die. That's a long time for fear and anxiety and worry and struggle to mumble around the crowd. And it was a real threat. But God's justice was going to happen God's way. 
Because God is precise, not precocious. And God's justice is thorough. But what if this happened today? Imagine this. With social media and instant news feeds, how would the story play out? How would we read about it? What would the skim say? Because <laughs> that's where you all go for your news. What would they say about King Xerxes? What would they say about Esther? What would they say of her reputation? Would they judge her? Would they call her complicit? She was in the king's court. She was a part of this corrupt government. She was literally sleeping with the enemy. She had hidden her cultural identity. She was living in the prestige and the privilege of the palace. Would they write her off and disqualify her character as not being justice-minded? Would they have called her a fraud? What would they have said about her? Would they have publicly demanded that she be a mouthpiece for their justice? That she draw a line in the sand and make it very clear which side she was on, knowing that she was on the right side? Would they ask for that? Would they want her to show allegiance? If social media had been around in Esther's day, I wonder how supportive they would have been of her. Would they have been able to see how her being queen was going to benefit them? Would they be able to wait to see the hand of God? Or would they have taken matters into their own hands? But Esther, she was a catalyst. And I have a definition of catalyst here for you on the screen. It's a substance that increases the rate of a chemical reaction without itself undergoing any permanent chemical change. Or a person or a thing that precipitates an event. And I love the marriage of these two ideas together. The idea that a catalyst goes in and changes something, but doesn't itself get changed, and precipitates another event. So as we continue to look at the story of Esther, there's a few key things I want to pull out, lessons that we can learn from Esther in the style of catalyst that she was. And the first one is that catalysts, they don't put their trust in their circumstances. Catalysts put their trust in God. Esther might have surveyed her circumstances around her and cowered in fear. I know I would. The most powerful official in the king's court was on a war path to kill her people and her. And she could have been paralyzed with fear knowing that if she spoke up, she'd be killed herself. She was just one person. I mean, how much effect could she really have? But Esther didn't put her trust in her circumstances. She put her trust in God. Psalms 56, 3 and 4, but when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, of love, and a self-discipline. Isaiah 41, 10 and 13, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged. For I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. See all your enemies? They lie there confused and humiliated. Anyone who opposes you will die and come to nothing. You will look in vain for those who tried to conquer you. Those who attack you will come to nothing. For I hold you by your right hand. I, the Lord your God, and I say to you, don't be afraid. I'm here to help you. 
God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of you, the one who resurrected Jesus Christ, he's got your back. He's for you. And he's working all things out for your good. So what can man do to us, really? Catalysts put their trust in God. But catalysts, they also, they don't get their direction from culture. Catalysts seek God for wisdom and understanding. You see, Esther chose to submit all of her actions to the authority of God. She knew that she was walking into a potentially fatal situation. The stakes were high. She needed wisdom and insight that she did not have in and of herself. She needed favor that she had not earned. She needed strategy that she didn't yet know. And so she actually called for a corporate prayer and fasting of all the Jewish people because she knew that she needed the wisdom and the understanding of God, that she needed favor, that she needed God to work on her behalf. Ephesians 5.15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. And make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Catalysts seek God for wisdom and understanding. But also, catalysts do not become impatient in the waiting. Catalysts move when God says move, and not before. Esther, she could have gone with her emotions. She could have stormed herself right into the courts of the king, demanding to be heard, knowing that she was on the right side. She could have poured her passions out before him and never been truly heard. She could have been taken out before any change was made. She could have had all the right intentions, gone about it in the wrong way, and completely missed it. But instead, she submitted herself to God. She changed history, and she brought justice to her people. Esther wasn't seeking to just be heard. She wasn't just seeking to share some information. She was seeking to be an impetus for transformation. It was bigger than her. I also love that Esther, she didn't try to be something that she was not. She didn't try to upend the social system. She wasn't trying to correct all of the corruption. She didn't wait for all of the things to be right before she moved in. She just took what little bit of authority she had. She took the little bit of understanding she had of the social structure, and she just did it. She walked forward in full authority and in full confidence, not actually knowing if she was going to live or she was going to die, but knowing that God had her back. But she knew she had to do it God's way and in God's timing, and it was completely effective. Proverbs 20, 22, don't say, I will get even for this wrong. Wait for the Lord to handle the matter. Whew, that one's hard. Psalm 37, 34, so don't be impatient for the Lord to act. Keep moving forward steadily in his ways, and he will exalt you at the right time. And when he does... You will possess every promise, including your full inheritance. You'll watch with your own eyes and see the wicked lose everything. Psalm 27, 14. Here's what I've learned through it all. Don't give up. Don't be impatient. Be entwined as one with the Lord. 
Be brave and courageous and never lose hope. Yes, keep on waiting, for he will never disappoint you. And I think this one challenges us sometimes because we can sometimes interpret waiting as weakness. We can interpret waiting as a lack of courage to move in. And I appreciate Esther's willingness to wait. Notice how in the story, the first time she went to the king and she had the feast, she didn't, she didn't speak what she needed. She invited him back the second time. And the story doesn't describe exactly why, but I have to imagine it's because she heard. She got a check in her spirit from the Lord that said, now's not the time. He's not going to hear you. You don't have the favor that you need. Try again tomorrow. And so she did. Same thing. Same thing God had asked her to do. She faithfully did it. But it happened in God's timing. Because catalysts move when God says move and not before. And lastly, catalysts, they don't take ownership for the transformation because they recognize, catalysts recognize that the Holy Spirit is the true catalyst. Psalms 146, 7 and 9. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and the widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. And I think sometimes we can become so passionate about justice that we can start to believe that justice is ours, that we own it, and it's up to us to make it happen. It's up to us to find the strategies to be the voice. But justice, it belongs to the Lord. He created it. He designed it. He upholds it. And it's his Holy Spirit and the power that he has that brings it to pass. We look at Esther's story. We do see an unlikely person in an unlikely place who does an extraordinary thing and alters history. And Esther's story, it's just an example of the gospel story. It's very much like Jesus. He was an unlucky guy came into an unlikely small town, showed up, did unlikely things, and then he died. It's not quite what people were expecting. And his ministry on earth, it wasn't particularly long. It was a short ministry, and people had so much expectation about who Christ was going to be, that he was going to change the political system, that he was going to become the true king in the natural but in his ministry, it, it actually kind of looked like a failure from the outside. The social structure was the same. The political system was the same. Innocent people like John the Baptist were still in prison, and Jesus actually died. It kind of looked like he missed it. But sometimes what we think in the natural is a miss. is actually God transforming something in the supernatural. Because Christ didn't miss it. He did exactly what God designed him to do at exactly the point in history that God had called him to do it. And it transformed everything. I think that this is the type of catalyst that we should be. Hope speakers. Life bringers. Justice seekers. God delighters. 
when we partner with God and we trust God for transformation, that's when things really happen. Because each one of us, we're only a single person. We're only one. But God sees the matrix of all of us combined together and the power of each one of us submitted to his Holy Spirit and walking in line with his will, moving when he says move, speaking when he says speak. And he brings all that together to push back the kingdom of darkness and to bring the kingdom here on earth. So I want to encourage you not to be defeated, not to think that I don't matter or my position doesn't matter or to think that it matters too much. Somewhere in between, recognizing who we are in Christ and the power and the authority that we walk with. And even if our life depends on it, like Esther, to bring people life and life to the full. But I want to spend some time doing a little bit of a practical faith exercise. How is it that we apply this concept to our life just a bit? So we're just going to take a moment for you to reflect on your own life. You can close your eyes if you want. Really, I just want you to not be distracted, but I do want you to try to hear from God. And just ask some questions about yourself and about God. And the first one I want you to consider is, what justice is God speaking to your heart? Not what injustice is he speaking to your heart. What justice is he speaking to your heart? What part of the kingdom of God is he asking you to champion, to catalyst, to be a mouthpiece for? And I want you to consider where it is that you're positioned. Right now, in your life, in this time of history, in your job, in your family, in your neighborhood, maybe even in your actual apartment with your roommate, where is it that he has you positioned? Where's your sphere? What are the circumstances that got you there? Can you see God's hand? And then, when was the last time you offered up your methods to Jesus? To change them? Maybe to dismantle them? Inspire them? Redirect them? How is it that God's speaking to your heart and encouraging you to be a catalyst for him? Because if we want to be a catalyst, we have to put our trust in God. We have to seek God for wisdom and understanding. We have to move when God says move and not before. And we have to recognize the Holy Spirit as the true catalyst of transformation. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then... Whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in this struggle together. 
You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. Let me pray for us. Father, we recognize that you are in control. We submit ourselves to you. We see that justice is yours and that you promise to uphold it with your mighty right hand. You're not confused or put off or somehow impotent. But you are working and moving and active even today like you have always been. But Father, you ask us as your bride to come and partner with you, to be a part of your plan, to rise up and to be catalysts for your kingdom, to speak your words of truth and life and freedom, to be your hands of healing and justice and ministry. I pray, Father, wherever it is that our feet walk, that we will walk in your favor. Because first, we've submitted our hearts to you. We're listening for your wisdom and understanding. We're allowing you, like a breath of wind, to redirect our focus. We want to be sensitive to you. We want to be used by you. I pray, Father, that the weight that we carry around with us would fall off. The injustice that we carry around with us that has not been righted yet, Father, that we would submit it before you. Because in due time, you will raise us up. Forgive us, Father, for taking things into our own hands that are yours. We open them. Teach our mouths to speak your words, our minds to believe your truth, and our hearts to courageously walk in your love. That we can be a change for people. That we can be a change agent that precipitates change, but with ourselves not being changed, but being renewed by you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City, or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.